When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2. Episode 52. Wasted Opportunities Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by Vincent Vecchion, the Earl of No Gods, No Masters, Joe, Viscount Monroe, and Robert, Viscount Barclay. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last time, we covered the Battle of Marston Moor. Prince Rupert and the Marquess of Newcastle led their forces against the combined armies of the Earl of Leven, the Earl of Manchester, and Lord Fairfax. The battle was a disaster for the Royalists. Thousands dead, another thousand captured, and the complete collapse of Royalist control in the north of England. Rupert salvaged a significant number of soldiers and slunk back down south to rejoin his uncle, Charles I. Newcastle went into exile on the continent, humiliated and out of favour. Marston Moor was a major turning point, perhaps the major turning point in the First English Civil War, but as we'll see today, it didn't necessarily seem that way at the time. It was a great victory for Parliament, that was clear, but King Charles was not down and he was not out, and it was entirely possible that weakness and division in the parliamentarian ranks might lead to the revival of royalist fortunes. Two episodes ago, we saw how Charles had defeated Sir William the Conqueror Waller at Cropperty Ridge. The king had withdrawn to Worcester after escaping the noose at Oxford. But once his scouts reported that the other half of the parliamentary army, under the Earl of Essex, had instead turned south and headed into Devon, he changed his strategy, turning on Waller and fighting an inconclusive battle which, nevertheless, gave Charles the freedom to manoeuvre. When Essex abandoned the chase and set off to relieve Lyme Regis, he didn't do so entirely without instruction from the committee of both kingdoms. They'd sent their commander-in-chief a letter 
which requested he send a force to rescue the town from Prince Maurice. The exact wording was, It is necessary to send presently such a strength as may relieve Lyme. Clearly, the committee had expected Essex to send a couple thousand men, at most, and to otherwise pursue the king. Essex instead decided the best use of Parliament's main field army was to gallivant into the southwest, and so gallivant he did. In June, Essex's army approached Lyme Regis, and Maurice duly lifted the siege. Essex then went on to capture a few towns across the southwest, but a glittering prize was on the cards the city of Exeter, and the Queen, who had fled behind its walls. Queen Henrietta Maria had left Oxford in April 1644, after discovering that she was pregnant. The royalist capital could be threatened by Parliament at very short notice, as would be shown just weeks later, and a city under siege is very far down the list of suitable places to give birth. So, she packed up her belongings, her retinue, and she said her farewells to her family. The Queen had ridden to Exeter, and the last months of her pregnancy were very difficult. She was very ill, and Charles wrote to a physician in London to beg, quote, For the love of me, go to my wife. On the 16th of June, in Exeter, Henrietta Maria gave birth to her last child, Henrietta Anne. The Queen enjoyed a month with her child, but with her health continuing to deteriorate, and Essex's army in the area, Henrietta Maria made what must have been a heartbreaking decision. She left the baby with Lady Dalkeith and Villiers and travelled to the Cornish port of Falmouth. There, she boarded a Flemish ship and sailed for France. She would take refuge in Paris, the honoured guest of the Mazarin Regency of her nephew, Louis XIV. Before the ship cast off, she penned a letter to her husband, quote, I hope yet to serve you. I am giving you the strongest proof of love that I can give. I am hazarding my life that I may not incommode your affairs. Adieu, my dear heart. If I die, believe that you will lose a person who has never been other than entirely yours, and who by her affection has deserved that you should not forget her. Charles and Henrietta Maria's marriage had not started well. She had been shipped away from her home as a pawn in dynastic politics to marry a man whose religion repulsed her, to live in a kingdom which despised her and her faith. Her rivalry with the Duke of Buckingham had led to her friends and allies, those few familiar faces she had brought with her into this strange country, to be deported back to France, leaving her more isolated than ever. Buckingham's assassination, devastating to Charles, was a fresh start for his relationship with his wife. Over the next decade and a half, their union had become a loving bond. She had advised him, sometimes well, sometimes not, and the famously stubborn king had listened. The king had fled London partly to protect his wife from Parliament and from the riotous Londoners. Once war broke out, Henrietta Maria had thrown herself into the Civil War, penning letters and travelling widely to attract support for her husband. She is far from done. But when she left the walls of Oxford on the 17th of April, she had just seen her husband Charles for the last time. She would never see him again. As far as Charles knew at this point in our narrative, his wife was still in Exeter, 
and Essex was leading his army right to it. His alternative plan was to move north, link up with Prince Rupert's survivors of Marston Moor, news of this defeat had already reached the king, but fearing for his wife and newborn daughter's safety, Charles didn't hesitate. He marched for Exeter. The king only learned that the queen had escaped Exeter after he'd already led his army south to link up with Prince Maurice and Ralph Hopton and intercept Essex. Essex soon learned that the king's main army was on the way. He called a council of war among his officers, and they considered three choices. The first, to turn around and face the royalist army in the field. The second, to continue on and besiege Exeter. Or, move west, deeper into Devon and Cornwall. Essex decided on the third option, to head west. He came to this decision based on three key assumptions that all turned out to be wrong. That William Waller was chasing the king's army. He wasn't. He was in London, complaining about Essex. That Parliament was popular in Cornwall. It wasn't. It was heavily royalist. And that the Earl of Warwick, the Admiral of the Navy, could assist him from the sea. This last one wasn't strictly wrong, but it certainly wasn't the help Essex would have hoped for. So Essex kept on moving west. Now, the thing about Cornwall is that it's a very narrow peninsula that gets narrower as you go. That narrowness, with nothing but the English Channel to the south and the Atlantic Ocean to the north and west, should have rung alarm bells for Essex. The further he went, the less room he had to manoeuvre. That would be fine, though. The Cornish were going to rise up and support his army, and Waller was right behind the king. It's not like Waller was miles away and Essex was heading deeper and deeper into hostile territory, definitely not that. The Committee of Both Kingdoms was well aware of the danger their Lord General was obliviously marching their main army into. They ordered Waller to drop everything and get to the southwest. This was on the same day that Charles gathered his forces, now 16,000 men strong, and crossed the River Tamar into Cornwall. The Royalists received supplies, new recruits, scouts, and guides from the Cornish. Essex did not. His supplies were starting to run low, but he remained completely oblivious to the danger he and his army were in. His scouts had informed him that the king was only leading 7,000 men. Essex was leading around 10,000, so that was a nice advantage in numbers. And anyway, Waller was just behind the king. All Essex had to do was bunker down, let the king come, and wait for Waller and Warwick to arrive with support. So Essex bunkered down at the town of Loswithiel. To his south was a stretch of land, bordered on the east by the River Fowey, and on the south by the ocean. It was a strong defensive position, but it was also a tricky spot to escape from if needed. He sent riders to the nearby port of Fowey to inform Warwick where to send his supplies, only for the riders to return and tell Essex that Warwick was nowhere to be seen. This was just the first bit of bad news for Essex. That same day, after a tip from a local boy, the Royalists surprised and captured a group of parliamentarian officers, who were staying at a house to the east of Loswithiel. They, along with their papers, were a tremendous intelligence win for the king. 
Charles brought his army closer to Loswithiel and sent a rider to Essex. Surely the parliamentarian general would obviously realise he was doomed and terms would be agreed. Not at all. Essex replied, saying that he couldn't negotiate, he didn't have the authority, but he'd of course forward the king's letter to Parliament. Essex was playing for time, hoping that Waller was on the way. Waller was not. In the following days, Charles was joined by Lord Grenville's army, and the now 19,000-man army slowly encroached on Essex's position. Day by day, the noose was tightened a little bit more. On the 11th of August, the cordon on land was complete, with the Royalists controlling the land from the coast, holding positions in a northwesterly curve towards Loswithiel. Around this time, Essex finally learnt that Waller was nowhere near, and he was on his own. He must have also realised at this point that instead of outnumbering the king's army, he was actually massively outnumbered by more than two to one. On the 13th and the 14th, the Royalists captured the eastern bank of the Fowey River, including a castle which overlooked the port. Over the following days, the Royalists advanced further south, taking vital defensive positions from Essex without much of a fight. His army was confused, low on morale, and probably wondering why they followed the Lord General into this trap. For the next few days, both sides fought an artillery duel, but with more pieces and with better positions, the Royalists relentlessly bombarded Essex's army. Charles's army just kept advancing. On the moonless night of the 31st of August, Essex ordered a force of 2,000 cavalry to break through the cordon and ride to Plymouth. The same day, he withdrew the rest of his army south, closer to the Fowey port, with the hope that the fleet could evacuate the bulk of the army. As they chased him, the Royalists seemed to have been ordered not to take prisoners. Vicious attacks and counter-attacks filled most of the day, with the Royalists consistently getting the better in these fights. Night fell. Utter destruction at dawn looked inevitable. So in the dead of night, Essex and his leading officers boarded a skiff at Fowey and rowed out to a parliamentarian ship. Because of the winds, Warwick's fleet couldn't come close enough to rescue the whole army, so Essex simply left it to find its own way. He left Philip Skippen in the unenviable position of command. Skippen suggested that they attempt to fight their way out, but after weeks of battle, exhausted, hungry, wounded, his soldiers were on the verge of outright mutiny, and he wisely decided to seek terms with the king. These terms were surprisingly generous. They marched out of the trap with their collars and given an escort to nearby parliamentarian towns. They had to leave their weapons behind, some 9,000 firearms and pikes and 45 pieces of artillery. And, despite the escort, many of the disarmed soldiers were killed without orders by vengeful royalists and angry Cornish locals. Essex, who arrived in Plymouth in disgrace, blamed everyone but himself, accusing his enemies in Parliament of withholding supplies and intelligence. He remained in his command, but Loswithiel was a disaster for Parliament and for Essex.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. In the aftermath of Lostwithiel, in September, Charles marched east. When Plymouth still would not surrender, he left Grenville in command of a force to continue the siege, and carried on, meeting up with Rupert at Sherborne. Rupert's force, recovered since Marston Moor, was still a significant portion of the Royalist military, and together they planned the next step. Rupert would go out and gather another 4,000 cavalry and 2,000 infantry, while Charles spent the months before winter relieving parliamentarian sieges throughout the Midlands, before spending the winter at a reinforced Oxford. For Parliament, their efforts were initially spent trying to force their commanders to work together. The Committee of Both Kingdoms wrote to Manchester, Waller, Skippen, and Cromwell, among others, to convince them not to publicly air their disagreements with each other and with Essex, and to work together for the good of the war. Unsurprisingly, simply ordering everyone to get along didn't work. Essex's reputation was in the toilet. His authority and legitimacy as the overall commander of Parliament's armies was hanging by a thread. The Committee of Both Kingdoms, as we'll talk about more next week, wanted to keep Essex in his position for political reasons. Removing him opened up the question of his replacement, and that was a question they really didn't want to ask in the middle of a campaign. So they threw good money after bad. To replace the field army that Essex had squandered at Loswithiel, Another force of 11,000 infantry and 8,000 cavalry was raised, and, once again, placed under Essex's command. Only a very small fraction of the infantry were veterans of Loswithiel, but how keen they were to serve under Essex again, I'm not sure. On the 15th of October, Charles decided to press ahead with a campaign, even without Rupert and his reinforcements, setting off to face Sir William Waller's army at Andover, south of Oxford. News of this offensive electrified the parliamentarians, and they mustered at Basingstoke. Within five days, Manchester had arrived from Reading, and Essex from Portsmouth. To try and resolve any lingering resentments between these officers, the Committee of Both Kingdoms had created a 
bizarre system of command. Lipscomb, a military man as well as a historian, is not impressed. Quote, it is an extraordinary document, and its conclusions for the execution and unity of command were completely unsuited to military procedure and decision-making. To all intents and purposes, the directive effectively placed the three armies under a subgroup, thereby conducting business by committee. End quote. So not ideal. The two armies were within three miles of each other by the night of the 26th of October, just outside the town of Newbury. Charles was heavily outnumbered, more than two to one. He had around nine and a half thousand men, with slightly more infantry than cavalry, but the combined armies of Parliament made up 11,000 infantry alone, with another 8,000 cavalry. Charles had a very defensible position, but against numbers like this, what chance could he have? Once the king was committed to the Second Battle of Newbury, surely this would be the end of the royalist cause. It wasn't. Newbury too was a mess for Parliament. The plan was too clever for its own good. Since Parliament had twice as many men as the king, and since Charles had placed his army in such a strong position, it was decided to split the Parliamentarian army into two. Half the army under William Waller would execute a night march that first went north, before turning west and spending the night behind the Royalist army. Manchester would command the Eastern army. Essex was off sick, recuperating at Reading, and together the King's army would be trapped between two equally large armies to his east and his west. If the plan had worked, it would have been a devastating blow to the King's fortunes. His army might have been destroyed or forced to surrender. The King himself might have been captured. But a whole host of problems followed. After Waller successfully completed his night march, Manchester began his attack at seven in the morning, distracting the Royalists while Waller completed the rest of the plan, marching against the enemy from the west. Waller took his position atop a hill directly behind the Royalist lines and set up his artillery, ready to fire by 3pm. When he fired his artillery, this was the signal for the trap to close. His infantry would advance from the rear, while Manchester would recommence his attack from the front. So Waller's artillery opened up, and his infantry began to advance, and Manchester did nothing. For some reason, he ignored the prearranged signal. When he eventually did order an attack, the dug-in royalists stopped them in place, and a royalist cavalry charge forced a rout. Waller's attack also faltered, since it had relied on the simultaneous attack by Manchester to distract the Royalists and destroy their morale. As night fell, Charles's army was bruised, but not beaten. Before the clock struck midnight, the king led his army north, threading the needle between the two parliamentary armies. He was, once again, away. In the morning, tempers were high in the parliamentary command tent. What was Manchester playing at? Cromwell was particularly incensed by his commander's behaviour. Was he a traitor, or merely incompetent? This was just the latest example of failure from the leading officers of Parliament's military, 
and these divisions were only getting worse. Over the following weeks, a unified parliamentary command, as much as there ever was, effectively collapsed. Essex was still at Reading, recovering from his illness. Even as disliked as he was, he was the overall commander. Decisions could be made, and his subordinates could accept them even if they disagreed. In his absence, Manchester, Waller, Cromwell, and others argued and bickered, and only really agreed to disagree. So in the wake of Newbury too, the Parliamentarian army moved to the nearby Donington Castle, and a small contingent put it to siege. The King's rapid escape from Newbury had required him to leave his artillery in the castle, and the Parliamentarians knew that he would have to come back for it. Since they couldn't decide on anything more proactive, they sat near Donington Castle, and they waited. Charles absolutely wanted his cannons back, and so on the 6th of November, he led 11,000 men to collect them. But instead of intercepting his army, or doing much of anything, the parliamentarian commanders just watched as Charles arrived at Donington Castle, forced the small besieging force back without a fight, recovered his artillery, and formed up for battle. But nothing happened. Disagreements between the commanders, combined with poor weather, collapsing morale and low supplies, meant that Charles was able to move south, relieve Basinghouse, and then return to Oxford and his winter quarters. The Committee of Both Kingdoms was beyond confused and furious at yet another missed opportunity. As we will see next week, the patience of Essex and Manchester's critics had worn thin. It was clearly time to reorganise the parliamentary war effort. It was time to fight a new kind of war, fought by a new model of army. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Marquess of Queensbury, Brent Sitz, and the Earl of Mansfield, Mark Petrie. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. If you know someone who you think would enjoy Pax Britannica, please tell them about it. Word of mouth is still the best way for a podcast to grow. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.